Amen. This is the word of God, right? We believe that, and we believe that God writes it on our hearts that we may not sin against him. It's important. Being persecuted for what you believe is no small matter. To be persecuted is to be hated and ill-treated and treated with great hostility for what you believe and who you are. Those that are persecuted are humbled and humiliated, hated yet hopeful. To persecute someone is the opposite, and it is also no small matter either. To persecute is to declare your beliefs superior to another's, to act in self-righteousness, to be self-exalting, and to treat others with great hostility for what you believe that they are wrong for because of who you are. Those who persecute are proud, they're puffed up, pompous, and poor in spirit. Jesus promised that his followers would be those who would be persecuted. That those who cannot endure persecution, Jesus taught, will not have the sowed seed of God's word planted in them. That may recall to you a parable that Jesus taught when you hear me say that. There is a parable, the parable of the sower, a story that Jesus tells, where he teaches that at times what seems to be the truth being received by someone, that is, somebody believing the gospel, that it sinks into the heart of some soil, but what looks like faith actually isn't because it never actually gets its roots deep down enough to actually produce a fruit that would withstand. And in that parable, Jesus said that like the blistering sun that rises when there's no clouds and scorches the plant, so does persecution rise up and show that the person never actually had faith in the first place. Other times in scripture, persecution is a refining fire. It's a pruning vine dresser that cuts the dead branches away. It's a tempest or a stormy trial or a self-inflicted attitude that we endure. Persecution will come. It will. And those who desire to live a godly life should expect it. Indeed, Paul writes to Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's 2 Timothy 3.12. So what do we do? What do we do? How can we be prepared for persecution? How should we act when the world or those in the world or Satan and his demons come with their favorite rod of accusation or humiliation or persecution for us? Well, to answer that briefly, we, of course, follow the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, just like our apostles do in our text this morning. Luke, the author of this, provides for us in this historical narrative, a story uh, that you just heard, an example to us, okay, a way forward when believers in Christ are persecuted unjustly, the example that is given to us here, when they're mistreated, when they're threatened even, it's an example for us. In this text this morning, as we study this story, we're going to see that when we are persecuted, we must do three things. We must endure eagerly, knowing earnestly that Christ will complete his work, 
Secondly, we need to endure boldly, believing that Christ will bring some persecutors even to the faith. And also, we need to endure faithfully, trusting that our Father will take care of us forever. So we have to endure. Endure eagerly, endure boldly, endure faithfully. We cannot deny him. We cannot deny him. So let's look at that together this morning. Point one, endure eagerly, knowing earnestly that Christ will complete his work. That's what we must do. We endure eagerly through persecution, knowing earnestly that Christ will complete his work. The context and the setting of our Bible passage this morning is a first century, so I mean, early, early first century Jerusalem with a massive temple of worship, the temple of Herod. These apostles, Peter and John, have just preached to a massive crowd. And the reason why they're so big is because they've gathered around this spectacle of a man who now we know from our text has been crippled for over 40 years and he's been healed. He's been healed. And these men have just preached a saving message of hope in the gospel, calling everybody there listening to repent of their sins. And if they did so, that they would have their sins blotted out. And the crowd that is present has skipped the normal activity that was supposed to be going on, that is the normal evening prayer, the evening sacrifice, and they've instead opted to listen to these two guys who have healed this man, Peter and John. Because of these actions by Peter and John, we get verses one through three of our text as an ominous introduction of the text this morning. Now, I say ominous because and you may not know what the word means as a characteristic here of these, these people who are persecuting Peter and John, but I think it fits. Here's why. When, when something is ominous, it's positioning itself over you in a threatening way, as if it will, when it happens, cause unpleasant things to happen to you. That is exactly the profile of these religious leaders. They are an ominous group in our text, and they've come against Peter and John. <laughs> We could translate when they arrest them, they laid hands on them. You know, you know what I'm talking about? You ever seen somebody get their hands, hands laid on them? This is not in my notes, but I remember in China that uh, one time we were at this, we were on a mission there and we were in this big plaza and these people were selling like light, light up things. And I'll never forget like all of a sudden, like a guy who had a big bag of those and was trying to sell them to people, the authorities there, they didn't yell at him. They didn't say anything. They full form tackled the guy, laid hands on him, ripped the bag out of his hand, said something in Chinese that I didn't understand, but I didn't need to speak Chinese to understand what they said because it was clear, you're not selling those here, buddy. And they kind of kicked him on and he went on. They laid hands on him. That's what's happening here. Laying hands on them is how this is going. They're not gentle with them. Um, they're, they're not trying to treat them with any kind of dignity. They're, they're mistreating them. Their actions as persecutors are deliberate and hostile, and everyone now knows it. These religious leaders in verses 1 through 3, notice it said in verse 1 um, that, you know, that uh, they came upon them, and it implies a suddenness. Notice in verse 2 that they are greatly annoyed with Peter and John. It started there, that is in the entire event itself, is annoying them. And now we see by verse 3, they're acting on their hatred. Simple to see, yes, but have you thought beyond the words of this story just now that you've heard read to you? Have you asked in your head, why, why so much hatred? 
Well, this specific event would have made this group of men angry for three reasons. First, the people are not present at the, at the temple activity that normally has been going on, the evening prayer. And so because of their attendance of this sermon of Peter's, these men think this is a threat to our power. And second, they would have major issues with the message that Peter and John have just said concerning Jesus, who has risen from the dead, preaching the resurrection, and the call that they've given for these people to repent and believe. You see, it was a threat to their theology. So their power is threatened, their theology is threatened. And thirdly, the fact that John and Peter are common men. You know, Pink Floyd said, we don't need no education, right? That's how they're perceiving them. That these brothers think they're above the education, so they would think, these persecutors, that they would normally understand the people to come to them for. And these common men are doing the type of thing at this hour that's supposed to be theirs, and that really sets them off. Why? It was a threat to their dignity. It was a threat to who they were because their approval was bound up in the people. So a threat to their power, a threat to their theology, a threat to their dignity. These three verses stack the odds against the disciples. Persecution is clearly outlined here. How will they persevere through such anger and hostility from these leaders? Well, we see it in verse 4. They endure, as we have said, and we'll keep saying, they endure, and they do so eagerly, knowing that Christ is completing a work. Look at verse 4 again. But many, but many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the, the men came to about 5,000. Excuse me. Beloved, does it encourage you to see that despite pushback and discouragement and hostility, even wrongful imprisonment, Many, if you write in your Bible, underline many of those who heard the word believed. Many believed. We endure persecution because we believe that many still need to believe. We believe that. Many in our text is not arbitrary. It, it's, it's numbered. It's known. It's, it's walking in covenant love together. When it says 5,000, it's, it's talking about the new number now that is accompanying the, the church that are added to. They're, they're cut off from the world in a special way. They've opted to believe in Christ, and he, he has proven to be a sufficient Savior for them. This word, believed, it says they believed, is, is used more than 240 times in the New Testament. It's a favorite. And it has clear implications. Paul says, when you believe, it happens like this. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. Because with that heart you have, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth that you have, one confesses and is saved. There's no distinction, Paul says in Romans 10, between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is the Lord of all, and he bestows riches on all who call on him. Why? Because everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Why does Paul say that? Why? Because, because it happens, and in our text, it happened. Despite persecution, it happened plainly. The endurance of the apostles, of the apostles through persecution is rooted in their hope that God saves. Ask yourself what the rest of Romans 10 asks. How then will the people who are supposed to be saved, how are they going to be saved? 
how are they going to call on him who they've not believed, Paul asks. Paul says, how are they to believe in him who they have never heard? He keeps asking, how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? You know why? Because faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Endurance matters. And we need to be eager as these apostles were in their endurance because it is true that God is completing his work even when we don't see it. Have you thought about the fact that when this persecution comes upon them, they likely didn't know that God had added to the 5,000. Some other leaders probably stood up because the immediacy of this persecution lands them alone in a jail cell. They don't get to find out until tomorrow when they're on trial. They don't get to find out until they're released the next day and rejoin the brethren that God has used despite their persecution. God has used the preaching of the gospel to bring people to him. They don't know it. Man, I wish I, I would have loved to have been in that cell that night, wouldn't you? Just to hear them with the assurance they have to know we did the right thing. We preached the gospel. We leave the rest to God. But they did it. They endured for that reason. The lesson from verses 1 through 4 is clear. We can endure persecution, and we should do it eagerly, knowing what? Knowing earnestly that Christ will complete his work. He will complete his work. There's another reason in the text of why we endure We should endure boldly, believing that Christ will bring some persecutors to the faith. This is the second point this morning. Endure boldly because we believe that Christ will bring some persecutors to the faith. We have a setting change in verses 5 and 6. Notice it said on the next day, the rulers and the scribes, they gather. There's this whole family there. Um, The setting has changed. The rest of our text now takes place in the setting of law and order where the district attorneys are ready to prosecute the defenders, right? These are their stories. Boom, boom. Um, But no, it's not like that. It's not make-believe crime drama, okay? You got to remember when you read historical narrative, this is recorded history. This happened, okay? This this is the first church, and this is the first fiery trial and tribulation that the church faces. Weak men like Peter and John, Paul and Barnabas, Timothy and Titus, are going to endure persecution boldly by God's grace. You know why I call them weak? Because apart from him, they can do nothing. Jesus said that. But with him, they can endure. Now, we learn from this next section that they preach the gospel to their own persecutors. And they do so in the hope that they too can be saved, which is really amazing, this next section of scripture. Before moving on, make note that if you read the Gospels at all, some of the names of these leaders in verses 5 and 6, you would know this is the same uh, you know, high priest family that set up and, or- and orchestrated the mock trial of Christ. So if they're going to reject the Gospel, they're going to deny the glory of God. They're going to deny God's deity, His power in this healing. If they're going to you know, deny, it's going to be in the same spirit that they committed Pilate, committed Jesus to Pilate's hands for the mutilation and the crucifixion of his own of God's only son. So it's the same people. Some things never change, right? We would quickly say yes, but listen to me. For us who maybe don't want to endure boldly, we would say yes, but when we wear the chains of these faithful men, when we wear the context that they have, if you can walk the next day with them into that trial and behold these next verses, I think you're going to see a bold belief in them that Christ could work to make an appeal even to the highest haters of the faith through them. I believe they do that. Look at me at verse 7. When they had set them in their midst, there they are, chained, looking 
looking, you know, to, to what is uh, to come, their trial. There's the leaders all gathered. By what power, the leaders say, by what power or what name did you do this? I read it like that on purpose. This is not a nice question, okay? This is when the mom comes to their kid and says, what in the world were you thinking, right? That's what it, that's what it is. It's, it's, it's rendered in such a way. Luke, if he would have reported it fully here, uh, I like, you know, he, would have inclu- he maybe would have included some things about their accusations, I mean, the question implies that they're accusing them, that they're using some other power than the power of God to do the things that they're saying God did. They've said this before about Jesus. These very people said to Jesus that it was demons that gave him the power. It was by the demon Beelzebub that he cast out demons, not because he's the son of God. They they know this language and they speak it. If Luke gave more detail, their accusations would be that they have no authority to do these things. After all, they're just common men. You hear that in the text, right? In their astonishment, after Peter speaks, they, 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 they out themselves. How absurd for you Galileans to be t- talking to us this way. But right now, it's like, hey, what have you done? And they're filled with hatred. And, uh, and I think Luke in 7 is showing the feeling that they've been walking in in these first seven verses. But now we switch, we switch gears and we notice a different feeling is also happening simultaneously, which is very important regarding persecution. It says that in verse 8, then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Make note of that. For time's sake, I won't read you Peter's opening statements in verses 8 through 10, but we do need to make note of something. The Holy Spirit fills him and he is bold. Boldness comes forth out of Peter's mouth. Peter is electric. I mean, he is full of fiery words as the Holy Spirit fills his heart with what to say. Make note, this was another promise of Jesus being kept. Jesus said when they were persecuted, dragged before governors and kings for his name's sake, that when they knew not what to say in that hour, he would give them the words to say. So take hope in that. They do. The Holy Spirit gives Peter wisdom and boldness necessary to stand up against such powerful men. But I don't want us to underestimate the sway that these men would have over Peter's life here, all right, over his future. They are revered by everyone in Jerusalem. They are leaders of the community, and they are truly not to be trampled with in the minds of every Jew that's alive during this time. But we note Peter's boldness this morning ourselves with these words. And even in a few verses, Luke acknowledges it through the recognition of these leaders. They even see his boldness. Peter's words are clear. If you paraphrase him, it would be something basically this. If it has to do with the healing today that you've, you know, that that you've witnessed, then let the record show it's because of your hardness of heart to not accept Jesus that you can't see that this is, the healing was not the gospel issue. The issue is, is that you're denying the, the Savior, You would bring us in here to assess this man. God has brought us in here to assess your hearts. It's a bold statement. But it is the thing he says. Peter immediately calls them out. So next we see instantly, Peter goes from the defensive to the offensive. Okay? Uh, he, He goes offensive. And he speaks to them in verse 11 very, very clearly. We get... I think one of Peter's favorite things to do in a sermon, as I've learned him, is is he says this Jesus a lot. You notice that? This Jesus, this Jesus, this Jesus, right? He's like, you want to put a pin in something? Put it in this, right? He's pounding his pulpit. This Jesus. And here in verse 11, it's the same. This Jesus. 
is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And this Jesus, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Man, that's powerful words, bold words. Peter quotes directly from the Old Testament. Bold move, Cotton, right? It's a bold move because these guys are, are notorious in the Old Testament. Now, granted, the Sadducees, not so much in the Psalms. But when the full councils gather, we got scribes there. We have Pharisees there. We have people who have devoted their entire life to understanding. Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Peter takes it word for word for them and shows them a direct application. That they are actually the ones whose souls are at war with Christ. The healed man that they're concerned about, he believes. The many people who are seeing it, many of them have believed. And just when they think that they are bringing a charge against God, Peter shows them that God's sovereign working has put the saving message right in front of them for the purpose of them hearing it and them understanding. Wow! What a bold dude! Peter and John are not the first people to endure persecution and hatred because of their hope that God could save and to hold out their hope to their enemies. Let me give you one example that is one of my favorites from church history. Okay, the church is littered with a history that, uh, of this belief that God can save even those who persecute. So even those who stand against God and stand as enemies of God, they can actually be saved. And God's people will believe it. Let me tell you about one. There's a young man, well, he was young, he's dead now, but he died young, named William Tyndale. Some of you may know Mr. William Tyndale's story, but in 1535, William Tyndale was arrested by the leaders and officials of the Roman Catholic Rand State of England, and he, in Brussels, was jailed in a castle. He was put in a castle in, uh, just outside Brussels for over a year. And then in 1536, he got convicted of heresy. And then he was executed by strangulation. They choked the life out of him. After he was dead, they put his body on a stake and they burnt it before everyone as an example. But let me tell you about William Tyndale. He was no heretic. He was simply willing to be bold, believing that God was working amidst the corrupt dealings of the Catholic Church and the religious state at that time. He stood on the hope that this Jesus that you would oppose with so many sanctions and so many lies about how a man can be right before God, this Jesus, he stands alive today to offer the real gospel. And this brother translated the Bible because he wanted everyone to believe that that message could be believed by them as well. They don't need to go through some priest. They have high priest Jesus. How can they see that if they don't read it? And Tyndale committed his life to it, and it cost him his life. And as he was being strangled, history shows that before that horrible, awful moment, his dying prayer was that the king of England, that the king of England's eyes would be opened. And what's amazing is, and this is, it doesn't always happen this way, but this story in church history does. Because if you've got the dates in your head, 1535, 1536, it makes sense that we call this guy the morning star of the Reformation, right? Why? Because his, uh, his prayer seems to be answered. 
Within one year's fulfillment, King Henry authorizes Matthew, the, the Bible of Matthew, that is the, the largest of Tyndale's own works. He authorizes the work that Tyndale had committed his life to, literally, through persecution. This Bible now gets passed into the commoner's hands a year later. What was Tyndale believing when they choked the life out of him? Okay, he was believing this, Colossians 3.3. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He believed that. He went to that strangulation with a hope and a prayer. This life means nothing to me. What, what, this life is nothing. I count it as loss so that I may gain Christ. All right? And, and he goes with this boldness to say, I have died. Let it be. If I die, my life's hidden with Christ in God. Now, if these words must be their last, Peter and John show us that the truth that they believe is that even these haters of the gospel can be saved. Even them. And so what do they do? They preach the gospel to them. So, First, we endure eagerly persecution, knowing earnestly that Christ will complete his work. And second, in this example here, we endure it boldly, believing that Christ can bring some persecutors to the faith. And finally, this morning, we see we should endure persecution faithfully. Endure it faithfully. Because we trust that our Father will take care of us forever. We endure faithfully, trusting that God He'll take care of us. Verses 13 through 18 show us that at this time, it seems like none of the religious leaders actually come to faith about this persecution. However, they do come face to face with something that is shocking to them. The text actually says astonishing to them. Okay, And then what it is, it was the faithful endurance, the faithful boldness, and the eagerness that John, of John and Peter. These verses show us the private audience of the council. Now, now check this out. Quick side note here and a spoiler alert. Just ask yourself as you study this week, how do we know the private affairs of the conversation of the leaders when our, our witnesses are dismissed? Someone must have leaked this conversation. Someone must have leaked it to a, a, a real faithful brother named Luke who was trying to put together the early stories of the history of the church. I'm going to leave it there for you because later we'll see in the book of Acts why and who maybe leaked that because they're mentioned by name. But the point being, as you pick up your Bible and study it this week, we get to go back door and see behind the curtain, Peter and John, the persecuted ones, they wait in the tension of what's going to happen to us, but we actually see the deliberation firsthand. Let's read about it. Look at verses 13 through 18. They're powerful. I want to read them again. So when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, verse 13 says, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And check this out. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That just hits, you know what I mean? Like that, that verse just hits. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, okay, John and Peter are gone, they conferred with one another and listened to what they said in verse 16. What shall we do with them? <laughs> what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident. It's evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and us. And we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them. Right, let's squish it out. Let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name, end quote. 
verse 18. So they brought them back in. They called them and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Wow. I mean, honestly, this, this is some amazing text to me because it shows the honest side of a persecutor. And granted, they use that honesty to do horrible things, but at least they see the facts for what they are. And I think that gives hope to us who endure persecution. This man is healed and, and he was crippled for life before that. They know that. Okay, these dumb commoners have been with Jesus. They know that and they say it. Okay, they recognize it. Okay, from the lips of the ones who would tell them and hate them and and eventually beat them and eventually murder some of them, from their very lips, it was recognized. These guys have been with Jesus. That should give hope to those who are persecuted. The message of these men is spreading like wildfire. They know it. They, They admit it. The name of Jesus is a problem. Okay, they know that. But you know what they do, persecutors? They take what they know and they weaponize it. Because there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is seen here in them, okay? With knowledge alone, you can burn the world and never be wrong in your own eyes. But man, with wisdom, Christ, who is our wisdom, can come under understanding of change. Fearing God more than man is essential to understanding the endurance of the apostles next. It's contrasted. When they come in in verse 19 and, and they, they hear in mean, 18 and then in verse 19 we get their answer. I want us to note, you know, they promise to persecute them more if they're not silent about them. So look at verse 21. I mean, you know, they further threaten them. So, so these guys don't change their mind. They promise to do worse things, but, but look at verse 19 through 20. Look at this closely with me today. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. (laughs) We ask our children, what is our only hope in life and in death. And we tell them that they need to memorize this. The answer is this, that we are not our own, but we belong body and soul to God. No matter what these men think is right or wrong about these apostles, it is implied that no matter what they may do to them, as a result of disobeying these threats, Peter and John are resolved to stand firm in the faith to proclaim the resurrection and to speak of what they have seen and what they have heard with their own eyes. They can say nothing else. They are bound. Their conscience is captivated and they will not recant. They've seen it, okay? These brothers know the preserving care and the love of Christ. It ain't empty promises for them. The threats are empty from the persecutor because the promises are real. Think about that. Right? I mean, silly rhymes or sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's not true. Words can really hurt you. And they, these, these haters, they hope that they can throw some words to hurt, but these words don't have sting. They bounce off of these disciples. Why? Because the, the, the hopes, the thoughts, the restructuring of their mind that Christ has done through regeneration and hope and faith in him and the scriptures, man, that's fresh on their hearts. And they say, that's not important to us. What's important to us is what we will not stop talking about. We can't do that. We will not deny him. They cannot deny Christ before men because they know Christ himself is not going to deny them before the Father. 
Why? Because he said he's pardoned them. It's up to God to judge them. That's what they rest in. They rest in that we have proclaimed to you, we will not obey what you say, and now we leave you in the hands of God. You think you leave our fate into your own counsel? You don't. We actually leave you into the hands of God, but we can't deny him. So you do with it. Now, it's not a defiance in them that's rooted in causing chaos. I want you to see that. It's a defiance that's rooted in love. These men are spittle flying, yelling at them. You, and they further threaten them, right? You do not say it. Stop talking about it. And they don't, they don't, they don't meet them back with some fiery hatred. They look at them and they say, with the peace of heaven, we're going to talk about Jesus. With the word of heaven, they, they, you know, that, that Jesus promised, that they're going to speak to them with the hope of heaven that's permeating through them. With, with the eternal life and the promises that God awaits them, they're going to look these men in the eye and say, no, no, we can't and we won't. All this is foreign to their capturers, but not to them. You see, the chains that they wear in this moment when they speak tell of the chains that have transformed them, Right? One was bound for them the way they'd been bound. And God loosened those chains when he brought him out of the grave. One was put on his head a a crown of thorns that God transformed into a diadem of eternal glory. They know that. They know that whatever chains or marks or difficulty they bear, God is transforming it from one degree of glory to the next for them. And they they need not to lean on the hope of this age. Their hope is in the eternal age to come. And as heaven spills over through them into this courtroom, it declares God's will be done, not yours. And on this hope, God builds his church on the hope of persecution. Squash all you might. One rap, one rap artist actually nailed it, I think. He said, you know, what, uh, wow, I'm going to forget the lyric. Uh, basically, it's not in my notes, so that makes sense. God builds through the blood of the martyrs. So Tertullian, Tertullian is a church father who said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so in modern vernacular, Trip Lee uh, wrote a really powerful line based on that. And he basically says, you know, what, what are they going to do to us? Hurt us, right? Murder us. What murder does is send a surge of us to go put churches up. Having endured the cross, despising the shame, Their Savior has modeled for them how to endure persecution. And so now they know how to go and model despite the shame and despite the persecution to then model, uh, despite the shame and despite the persecution to then model, because what is happening? God is building his church and he's building it on the sure foundation of his own spilt blood and his own broken body. So when people are called to stand and spill blood and have their bodies broken, they do it willingly and they do it with joy. Why? Because they can endure For his name's sake, they endure. They are an example to us. So what do we do when persecution comes? Review. We endure eagerly, knowing earnestly that Christ is going to complete his work in us and in those that, you know, we're ministering to. God will complete his work. So we keep going. And we also endure boldly. And when we have opportunity, we call down liars, right? I mean, 2 Corinthians 10, we we, we go after the lies of Satan. Why? Because they're holding up in opposition to God's truth things that are lies. And we say no, and we take thoughts captive in obedience to Christ. We destroy lofty opinion and we destroy argument. What is that? Endure boldly, believing that Christ can even save some persecutors. And finally, we endure faithfully, 
trusting that our Father will take care of us. Just like he took care of his one and only son, so Abba makes us his children by Jesus, and he will take care of us too. In these things, in this story, we have a perfect little package of how a Christian can endure persecution. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to sing, and then we'll respond by praying to God some more, okay? Let's pray. Father, we ask for the endurance that's needed to finish the race. I ask it for myself, for my brother, Pastor Blake, Lord, for the church body here at Redemption, Father, for our, our, our guests and friends. Father, I pray that if we are in Christ and we have experienced the hope that eternal life is the grace of God, if we've been saved, Lord, help us to endure to the end. And if, or dare we say, when persecution comes, God, help us to stand, not on our own eloquence, not on our own words, not in, in any way may we stand, Lord, uh, that, that is somehow fabricated in our own mind as being sufficient. God, none of it is. What's sufficient in our weakness is your grace. Help us to stand in it. Lord, I pray that if anyone is currently enduring persecution, if they are hated by loved ones and family, barely tolerated by coworkers, or led, God, uh, astray at, at times, Father, to, to doubt because of their own self-inflicted persecution. It's your good. God, I pray you would help us to stand. Stand before those who hate you. Stand in, in the face of our own struggles and sins and proclaim to ourselves the gospel for our souls to have hope that we can endure. God, grant us the endurance that's needed to finish the race well, to stand with the likes of Peter and John, and to praise you in your glorious name. We need your help in all this, and we acknowledge that now, asking for it in Jesus' name. Amen.